We are going to finish up 1 Peter this morning. Uh, for we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, so you can turn there. If you want to continue to remember what the seniors, who they are, and pray for them. Um, we, this paper should be in your box. You can put it on your refrigerator, put it somewhere on home. Like at home, maybe if you have a prayer wall or something like that, uh, just to pray for the seniors. Clearly, Lydia, you have your mom's ability with the microphone. So, you never know what's going to come out. You want to laugh, give Karen a microphone. It's true. Um, well, yesterday was a good day, a beautiful day. Uh, we had finished up our soccer season. Our girls are fried from refing. We forgot about the sun, you know, because it hasn't been out all soccer season. So, thanks, Kevin, for pointing out. I don't know where he is. Oh, he's probably counting the money. Thanks, Kevin, for pointing out. I did a, te- or I did a 10K yesterday. My average pace was 10.02. So, oh, that was you. Well, thank you. He didn't notice those things. I, why did I give him the credit? I apologize. So, thanks for pointing that out. I was like, wow, 10, I didn't even notice. So, anyway. Um, yeah, we're going to finish up First Peter today. Uh, we've been walking through this book since January, so it'll be good to finish that up. Uh, chapter 5, basically, basically verses 1 through 11. Um, and then we're, uh, verses 12 and 13 are just kind of that final greeting. Um, if you're, if, for those of you who like history, which I know there's a lot to do and like to know who people are, um, when it says in verse 12 of chapter 5, 1 Peter, when it says, By Silvius, the faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Uh, that's most likely Silas. Uh, that would be Silas's full name. And so Silas, as in Paul and Silas, um, Peter actually asked Silas to take this letter out to all the churches, because a lot of the churches that this letter went to were churches that that Peter or Paul and Silas actually started uh, when Silas was a part of the missionary journey. Um, he who was at he, verse 13 says he she who is at Babylon. That's referring to the church in Rome because Rome was Babylon. Like in like in, you know, obviously revelations that the nations are always considered as Babylon. So she was the church of Rome, the Christian church in Rome living in Babylon. Um, we have Babylon's today. Um, the churches still live in those places. Um, and then Mark. So does my Mark, my son. That's John Mark, uh, the one who abandoned Paul on his missionary journey. So it's so cool to see that he was redeemed, he was restored, he was back in ministry. And Paul even talks about him in some of his later letters that Mark was just a servant. This is the same Mark that would have written the book of Mark. Uh, The book of Mark was written by John Mark and Peter would have dictated that. So those are just some names as you read those last couple of verses, if that helps you put it all together. Um, And I say all that not because it necessarily has anything to do with the sermon, but just to show that the body worked together. Right. Silas wasn't just with Paul or just with Peter. Silas took the letter out. Um, John, you know, Mark worked with both these guys. He wrote the book of Mark like the body. They were they were united. They worked together. So those are just some of the names for those of you who love to kind of connect the dots. So I'm going to just pray for our, our service that just that are my words are of God. And we'll dive here into verse one of chapter five. So Lord, we just thank you so much for Peter. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the encouragement that's here talking about leading the flock, encouraging the flock. And Lord, I just pray uh, 
that you will speak through me and that your words will come through me and that we will hear what we need to hear this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, 1 Peter chapter 5. And, and so basically, for those of you who've watched online or watched in person or who are listening to the podcast, chapters 1 through 4 focused on hope and suffering. So Peter was written, as we've talked about many, many times, to a church that was under suffering. The church was all over Asia Minor. Asia Minor? Asia Minor. You know, apparently I got some southern slang this morning. Um, the church was all over Asia Minor, um, and they were suffering. They were, they were suffering over Roman rule. They were, they were being persecuted. So Peter wrote this letter to give them hope, to, to help them with the suffering, to remind them that suffering is part of faith. We looked at that specifically last week, that you're going to suffer as a Christian. It's going to happen. And that hasn't changed. You're going to suffer as a Christian today in this world. And so that was the letter. But this last part of the letter is much more, much more personal. Okay, so he kind of the first four chapters were that. And then this last this last little bit of the letter, chapter five, as we call it, was a personal uh, encouragement, a personal challenge to specifically the elders, but then also to the young people of the church. And so we're going to look at all of it. Because I believe that the principles that he gave in, in verses one through five to elders, to leaders in the church, also apply to dads. They apply to men as we lead our marriage. They apply to dads as we lead our family. I mean, so he was specifically talking to elders, which in this time, elders was church leaders. So today that could be a pastor. It could be a bishop. It could be the church council. It could be a church board. It could be an eldership team. Every church has a different term for church leadership. And so these first five verses were specifically written to church leadership. The elders um, and then verses five through seven or five through eleven are, are just basically written to them, the congregation, the people of the church. And so five through seven talks about humility and trust verses five through seven. Um, and then from there on, it talks about uh, from uh, eight through eleven basically talks about watching and resisting evil. So he gives us call to leadership. A call to be to, to leaderships, what that should look like, essentially loyalty, uh, humility and trust, and then to watch and resist evil. So those are kind of the three little aspects that we're going to look at this morning. So the first one, this call to leadership. And like I said, I think this applies specifically, obviously, to our elders and to our, our board, but to, to pastors. But it also applies, again, to I think us as men, how we lead our marriages, how we lead our families, how we lead our children, how we lead our wives. So he says, so I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder, so Peter's reminding him, he's like, I exhort you elders, I encourage you elders, as an elder, like I understand where you're coming from, I understand the road you've walked. Um, and that's going to be key as we get further into this, when he talks about humility, serving in humility. You know, one, one thing that I saw in 2020 was a lack of humility in church. Across the board, just a lack of humility. There was a lot of, I know, I know, I know. And, and Peter's coming at this going, I, I want to encourage you because I've been there. And I think that's key. And, and I'm just going to say this right now because I, I need to get it off my chest. And, and, I think, and we're going to talk about this a little bit. But I think in church, we are so quick to destroy leadership. We trample on leadership. We bash leadership. And the reality is, do you know? Have you walked their shoes? Have you walked those? Like, I would never... Sit here and tell Randy how to vaccinate vaccine cows. I have no idea. I would never tell John how to deliver oil. 
I'd never tell Levi, he's not here, how to build fence. I'd never tell Brandon how to do drafting or Jason how to farm. I don't know those things. I've never walked them. But everyone tells a pastor and leadership what to do and how we're doing it wrong. Very little, very, very, very rarely are we encouraged. We are beaten down. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about in these chapters. He's like, look, we've got to be together. We've got to serve with humility. We've got to encourage one another. We're so quick to tell people what they do wrong. It's like, but have you walked it? Man, have you put together a sermon? Have you gotten that phone call at 2 a.m. because the kid is too embarrassed to call his parents and tell them where he really is and he needs help? Have you walked through marriage counseling? Have you walked through pre-marriage counseling? Have you walked through grief counseling with the funeral? I mean, we tell people how to do their job, but have we walked it? And I'm not talking about just Sigma. I'm talking about the church as a whole. Like, we bash leaders in church. But so many of us have no idea what we're talking about because we've never actually done it. So he says, I exhort you, elders, among you, as a fellow elder. And Peter's going, I'm going to give you encouragement. I'm going to tell you what to do because I know what it's like. I've been there. I've been in prison. I've been beaten down. In fact, he's writing this from prison. He's like, I get it. I understand. Another job that we destroy people too, I'll just say, is refing. Right? I'm, thank you. You're a ref, you know, right? And I'm just as guilty of that. I'm just as guilty. We sit there and we yell at these poor refs. I don't know how to ref. I haven't been trained. I haven't gone through school. And, uh, like, my kids have challenged me on that because my girl's ref. In this last game, I was complaining a lot. And Lydia said, Dad, be quiet. She's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And she was right. I'm sitting there. I mean, my own kid reminded me of my pride, and I had to be humble. She's right. I don't know what I'm talking about. I have never actually done it. So who am I to tell them they're doing it wrong? And Lydia understands the game better than anyone in our family. She is a phenomenal ref. So he says, elders, I exhort you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ. Peter's like, I've been there. I've walked it. I understand it. I know what it's like to lead a church. And again, remember, he's talking to all the churches in Asia Minor, not just one specifically. Because, guys, the reality is the problems in church are universal. It's not just Sycamore. It's every church battles the same things because people are in churches, right? We're all sinners. All churches battle the same thing. I don't care if you go to Africa, Europe, Asia. All churches battle the same thing because people are involved. We're not uniquely different in America. I mean, I was talking to Jimmy this week, and they're battling the exact same things in Cattell that we battle here. Kids want to have sex before they're married. Kids want to do this. Kids want to do this. Moms don't want to be... I mean, all the same thing that we deal with, they're dealing with. People are people. We might speak different languages. We might be different colors. But people are people. And at the end of the day, people are sinners. So every church around the world, around the globe, battles the same things. And that's why this letter is so applicable. He says, look, I understand... I've been a part of it. I am a leader. I've been a pastor. I've started this church in Rome. I get what you're going through. I've witnessed the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He's like, I've been a part of it. I understand. I want to remind you of some things. And that's what verse 2 is. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. So there's these three things that he tells them to do. 
He's like, whatever flock God has given you, shepherd it. Wherever you're at, shepherd that flock. Exercising oversight. In other words, sometimes you're going to step on some toes. You've got to exercise oversight. You've got to help the flock. You've got to show the flock, right? If you have a flock of sheep, you don't just let them randomly walk around. I, I don't, someone posted, I don't even know what I saw this on. It was, on a, it was some sort of social media outlet. And it was last week, and I just laughed. I wish I, wish I would have thought to save it. And it was this sheep. Right? It was a shepherd. It was, it was clearly like in the UK, like Wales or something. And the sheep, like, well, I'll just demonstrate it. So, like, this is the gully, right? The sheep goes, like, in the gully and is like this. And it's, like, up with its, like, legs kicking up in the air. Like, it's literally down in the gully with its legs up in the air. The shepherd goes, picks it up. The sheep literally does this. Boom, right back in the gully like that. Like he walked two feet and went right back in the gully with his little hind legs. It's up in the air. And someone goes, well, this is a perfect picture of the church. Again, I don't know where I saw it. It was hilarious. I wish I would have thought to save it to show for this morning. I know it's probably just more funny that I'm kicking my legs in the air. But he says, look, you've got to exercise oversight. Guys, husbands, fathers, grandfathers, leaders, we have to be willing to exercise oversight, which means hard conversations will happen at times. Because otherwise the sheep do the same thing over and over. They go into the gully and their legs kick up in the air. He said, not under compulsion, right? You don't serve because you're forced to. You don't serve out of obligation. You serve because you want to. It's a hard issue. You serve because you care about the body. You serve because you care about the sheep. He's like, if you're serving because you've been forced or you're under compulsion, then don't. Step back. Take a break. Take some sabbatical. So he says it's not under compulsion in parentheses, not quotation, but literally in parentheses, he says, but a willingness as God would have you. So you should be serving willingly, exercising oversight and serving willingly as God would have you. In other words, going, hey, here are my gifts. I want to use my gifts. I want to show my gifts. I'm going to serve with my gifts as God would have me. So that's the first thing. Then he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So he starts with a negative thing. He's like, look, you don't serve to gain something. This isn't about power. This isn't about money. This isn't about getting info. But you serve eagerly because, again, what you care, you're willing. I'll tell you one thing as a little secret, and I, I know you guys know this, but one thing that leaders hate and pastors hate, when you just want to be their friend to get information. Like, when someone's like, hey, so what's, like, do you care about me? Do you care about the friendship? And it's true, like, we, we, we make friendships in life, sometimes because we care about some people, sometimes because we're trying to get ahead, sometimes we're trying to get information. I mean, it's all aspects of life, right? He's like, look, this is not for shameful gain. You don't serve to get more money, to get more powerful, to get more info. You, you, you're not serving so you can be a megachurch pastor with your own jet and your own car and million-dollar salaries. That's not why you serve. You serve because you care. You willingly say, you know what, I don't need a raise. I have enough. I'm living on enough. Whatever it may look like. You serve because you care. And if you don't care and you're serving for shameful gain, then he's saying, then step down. Step out. Step back. And I think that touches all of us because we all battle pride, right? I do. I battle pride all the time. It's probably the biggest thing I battle. And then the third thing, he says in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. 
Right? So you're not serving over people. You're not lording over people. But you serve as an example to the flock. And man, I do not want to say any denominations because I don't want to cast anyone under the bus. But it, it frustrates me to no end these denominations where they serve over people. And the pastor is the law and whatever he says is the law. No. We serve together. By being an example, and that's how I have always tried to serve. Doing life with you, laughing with you, crying with you, suffering. Being examples of the flock. I'm, I don't have this all figured out, and I'm not better than anyone else. That was a huge thing we saw in the mission field, this domineering force. And I, I mean, the whole time we were there, Karen and I battled, like, guys, we're, we're just like you. Just because we're white and we're from America doesn't make us better. Like we're battling the same things. We're raising our kids the same way. We're dealing with the same issues. We serve by example, right? Because as servants of God, we're servants. We've missed that point. There's so much pride and arrogance in the American church amongst leadership. We've stopped being servants. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Serve like Christ. Christ was a server. He washed feet. He went the places you don't go. He led by example. He never once led by being a domineering force. Never once. He always led by example. It's how we should lead our marriages. It's how we should lead our families. And most importantly, it's how we should lead in the church. And then he talks about that in verse 4. He said, then, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He's like, when he appears, he's going to recognize that. He's going to say, look, you have served like me. Thank you. Here is your crown. It's an unfading crown. Man, think about that. Everything we have fades, right? Everything. I mean, you leave your, the car sits out long enough, the paint begins to fade. Everything we have fades. A tent fades. Canopies fade. Colors fade. But this crown of glory, this crown that we're going to get from God, you'll never have to take it anywhere to be clean. You'll never have to go through whatever the jewelers do to make your ring look new again. It is unfading. Because God is unfading. And we're going to be living with Him unfading. Never getting old. Never getting sick. Never getting tired. Never falling apart unfading. So then we got this switch in verses 5 through 7, which I kind of already started off on. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So again, this is where we switch. We're talking to the whole congregation now. He says, Likewise, when you're younger, be subject to the old elders. You don't sit there and go, hey, I know best, I know best. Yeah, conversations can happen, but be subject. Have humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So all of us, every single person in this room, we're supposed to clothe ourselves with humility, what? Towards one another. Humility towards one another. And, and I, you know, whatever 2020 was, one thing I am confident of, God revealed something to us as a church. Again, talking about the church as a whole. He revealed the areas in our church where we need work. I, I believe 2020, if nothing else, God was saying, guys, you need revival. 
Like, you are not loving on each other. You're, there's not humility. There's not servant. You've gotten so stuck on self, you forgot why you're the church. And the one thing I've heard from pastor after pastor after pastor is what they've seen in their congregations, that there was no humility towards other people during 2020. It was every man for himself. I, I've heard that from every town I've talked to, from every state I've talked to. I haven't literally talked to every state. But he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Man, if we're prideful people, myself included, God wants nothing to do with that. He opposed the proud. He opposed Saul, right? He opposed the proud leaders. He gives grace to the humble. Now, going back to this whole respecting your pastor thing that I talked about, and just, again, just using myself as an example. When I was young, I was not subject to elders. When I was young, I was prideful. I did not have humility. I thought I knew everything. And I remember giving grief to both senior pastors I served under, one at Blackhawk and one at Community Mennonite. And I just thought, man, what are these guys doing? Like, don't they just know if they did this, 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 and this, everything would work out and everything would be fixed? I remember going and having some conversations in their offices. I remember too, far too often gossiping about them amongst the staff, talking negatively. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just as guilty as everyone else. I'm not a perfect person. Because I thought I knew best. I was arrogant, just like I told you guys last week. I was prideful, arrogant, cocky, and thought I knew everything. And the one thing I've learned in the five years of passing this church is I don't know jack squat. I don't. I had no idea what I was talking about because I had never walked in their shoes. And in fact, my first year here, I wrote to both those guys in the email and apologized. Because what? I'm supposed to be clothed with humility. And I wrote to both Kelly and Dave and I said, I am so, so sorry. For the grief I gave you, for some of the times we got into heated exchanges in your offices, I didn't have a clue what I was talking about. I am so sorry. Your job is one of the hardest jobs in the world and no one will ever understand. And I'm sorry. And so when I, when I talk about this, us beating down pastors, I'm talking to myself as much. Because we are so quick to throw people under the bus and we have no idea what we're talking about. And I had to apologize to both those men. And I have one of them I, I don't really talk to that much. The other one I have a great relationship with. And he'll email me, hey, how's it going? What are you doing? I'll be like, I, man, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, what do you think about this? Oh, here's how. I, I mean, we, we go back and forth. We have like this restored relationship. But it wasn't until I understood what he walked through. I wrote, be a learner, not a knower. Verses 5, 6, and 7 just to me, say, be a learner, not a knower. Until you have led, do not assume you know how hard or easy it is. Until you've walked a mile in someone's shoes, don't assume you know what that mile looks like. And until you've done something, until you've led, don't assume you know how easy or hard it is. So he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, I know it doesn't say that, but it should, it should, right? Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And let God do the exalting. Let God lift you up. He says, humble yourselves under God. Be a learner. Be an understander. Humble yourselves before the elders, before people in the church. Learn from the white hairs in the room. 
Learn from those who have walked before you. Humble yourself so that when God is ready to lift you up at that proper time, He can and He will because you've learned. You didn't walk around assuming you knew everything, but you walked around going, teach me, show me, help me understand. It doesn't mean you agree with everything. Kind of like what, what Eddie said in this thing. You know, it's, it kind of is like gum. Sometimes you got to chew it, see what you think. It's like, okay, I get that. Or that's, that's silly and you spit it out. I mean, I'm not saying you have to agree with everything. But having that humble attitude to put others before yourself, being willing to listen and being willing to admit when you were wrong. And then the trust element, which again, I think we've showed as a country, we don't have a lot of trust in people. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you trust your leaders? Do we trust our leaders? Do we trust the people that God has put in place in this church to lead the church? Because if we did, shouldn't we be treating them differently? Shouldn't we be praying for them and going to them and talking to them? And all of our anxieties, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Remember, this whole thing is about shepherding the flock. So He's talked to the leaders now. He's talking to the church. He's like, look, you've got to have humility. You've got to clothe yourself with humility. It's for everyone. You've got to cast your anxieties on Him. You've got to trust that God knows what He's doing. He's put the right people in place. If the conversations need to happen, have them. But then cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Honestly, I checked. Worrying never adds a single minute to your life and it really doesn't fix anything. If you're a worry wart, you'll probably be someone who lives on Tums. Right? Worrying doesn't solve anything. It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't add to life. <laughs> Again, it's like that senior thing. It's like just being in the rocking chair. You don't go anywhere. I love that Cracker Barrel joke. Worrying is like being in a rocking chair. You just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You go absolutely nowhere. And sometimes God is calling us to go somewhere and we simply have to take a step and do it. Instead of talking about it, beating it like a dead horse, so the saying goes, or worrying about it. Sometimes she just says, would you just obey me? Would you just take that step of faith? And then the last part of this challenge, the, the watch, watch and resist evil. Verse 8, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we're supposed to be, what, spiritually vigilant, alert, aware, not distracted. We are a church distracted. As a country, we are a church distracted. We are a church divided. We are so distracted. What do we do with this? What do we do with that? Well, we need to accept this. Well, I mean, we are distracted. And then we distract ourselves because life is tough. We find things to distract ourselves with, right? Whether it's binge-watching a television show, whether it's playing a video game, whether it's sports, we find ways to distract ourselves because we're stressed, because we're tired, because we're casting our anxieties on ourselves and not God. We're so worked up, so we're like, well, i got to distract myself. Oh, I just, I just need to get it through the day. Like, I don't, I, don't, you know, I don't think it's still quite the movement. Man, the last couple of years, like this whole wine movement, like, that, that scares me. Like, everything you go is like a glass of wine a day. I just need to get to the day. And it was like, moms, just like, I have to have my wine. I have to have my wine. Why? 
I'm not saying it's wrong to drink. I'm not saying that. But why is that the thing we have to have to survive? Why, why don't we go to God? I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, it was in every store. Like, every decoration. It was like a huge thing in like 2019, 2018. We are not spiritually vigilant. We are not alert. We are way distracted. And the lion is having a field day. The lion, the devil, is a lion. He prowls around, roaring like a lion, seeking someone to destroy, to devour. If you haven't figured out, Satan is the bad guy. Not us, the church. But we act like we're the bad guys. We have a bad guy. And he's not red with little pointy ears and a tail. He comes around and he looks good and he looks inviting and he looks enticing. And his only job is to seek and destroy. That's all he cares about. He does not care about you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your relationships. He wants to destroy your marriage. He simply wants to destroy because misery loves company. And he knows he lost. He knows it. Misery, love, company. It's a saying you've all heard and it's true. He's roaring like a lion seeking to destroy. And guys, he's destroying the church. We have churches out there teaching that it's okay to be homosexual, that it's okay to get married, that it's okay to check your whatever, choose your gender. Like the newest thing in churches is we're telling young people to live together first to figure out if you're compatible so there'll be less divorces. Where are we alert? Where are we watching? How is this happening? Why is the lion in among us roaring and eating us alive? Because we don't love each other. We're not working together. We don't have humility. And we're fighting amongst ourselves. And Satan is sitting back going, sweet. I don't even have to try. These Americans are doing it for me. I can just walk in like a domino and go, boop. He prowls around like a lion, seeking to devour. I know that when we're young, we think some of these things are okay. We think they won't hurt us. We think they're, they're good, but they're not. So what does he say? What does Peter say? He says, you've got to resist him. Well, if we're not together, if we're not a family, how in the world are we going to be able to resist him? If I don't have humility to go to Brandon, to go to John, to go to Dwayne, to go to Levi and say, help, I need help, I need prayer. If I don't have the humility to do that, if I don't have the humility to have people in my life that I talk to, if I can't cast my anxieties on him, if I can't do those things, how in the world can I resist the devil? I can't. Right? I have to be able to go to my wife and say, look, I need help, I need prayer. I have to go to people in the church. I have to have that humility. I have to have that I'm younger and they're older. And by the way, when Cameron talked about old people doing reach, he was talking about 30-year-olds. So apparently you're old at 30. So I don't know what that means for the younger ones here in this Bible. It means there's a lot of old people in the room. And even older ones, I guess. 
But guys, like you see what I'm saying? This applies to all of us, myself included. These are things I try. To, I can't resist them on my own. I will fail. I've tried. Trust me. I've tried to resist them on my own, and I fail. I need the love of my wife. I need the support of my wife. I need my friends. I need accountability partners. I need to have humility and go to people who are older and wiser than me that have lived life and go, what can I do? What should I do? What does this look like? I haven't figured out this parenting thing. I constantly talk to people who've already walked through it. I'm terrified when Jada comes home and there's a ring on her finger. And I'm going to call John and go, what do I do? She wants to go live with a boy. She's my little baby girl. Like, what's going on? Thankfully, Lydia's never getting married, so we're good. You you declared it. You did. Are you changing your mind? Okay. So we don't have to worry about that again until Josiah decides to get married. That's why we need each other, right? So he says, resist him firm in your faith. He says, resist the devil, not the body. Right? Resist him. Resist the lion. Resist Satan, not the body. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. I mean, I underlined that in my, ver- in my Bible. I highlighted it. I had to remind myself of it. <laughs> I got to stand firm in my faith, knowing that suffering is going on worldwide. These things that I'm talking about, these things I'm experiencing, I can have these conversations with pastors literally worldwide. Like, it's, it, the world is the world. Suffering is happening. I went to a website to just kind of look up suffering by the church. I thought I wrote down what it was. Somewhere I did. Can't even read my own note. Oh, yeah, Open Doors. OpendoorsUSA.org. So this is where I got these numbers from. I'm not saying that they're perfect. But OpendoorsUSA.org just talks about the suffering worldwide. You know, in the 20th century... 20th century, so 1901 to 2000, that's the 20th century, 1901 to 2000, over 100 million believers were martyred for their faith. That's more than the previous 19 centuries combined. More people died for their faith in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries combined. 100 million Christians lost their life from 1901 to 2000, that's more than centuries 1 through 19. On top of it, it's more than the people that we lost in every combined war of the 20th century. The loss of life in all combined wars in the 20th century was less than the amount of Christians that died for their faith in the 20th century. The body is still suffering today more than ever. So when you stand firm, know that you're not alone. Our brothers and sisters in Asia and Europe and Africa and South America are suffering. You're not alone. We are in this together. Today, as of 2020, eight believers die each day. Sorry, it's 2021. According to to Open Doors, eight believers die daily. Twelve churches are attacked daily. Twelve people are arrested for no reason daily. And five believers are abducted daily. Every single day, guys. Every single day. Eight believers go home. 
that blood and wrath mentioned in Revelations 19 just keeps getting more. And the people behind Christ keeps getting more. In fact, eight every single day. Twelve churches attacked. Twelve arrested for no reason. Five adopted every single day. The church is still suffering. And we spend so much time fighting among ourselves. So resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, so it's right back to the suffering, (laughs) what he started with, he ends with. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore himself. So Peter reminds us, you're going to suffer. The world is suffering. The church is suffering. Here are the things we've got to do until God comes home. But God is coming back after you've suffered a little while. And think about that. That's a fair statement, right? We, leave, we live for eternity with God in heaven. Our 80 years is a little while. Even if we suffer the whole 80 years, it's a little while compared to eternity with Christ. Put it in that perspective. I know some of you are like, I don't even like to suffer for an hour, let alone a day. But if we think about this, we spend eternity with God where there will be no suffering. 80 years is nothing. 75 years is nothing. So we just suffer for a little while. The God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory. God's called you to that eternal glory. You will not suffer there. It will be good. And he himself, and he gives these things of why we have hope, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter reminds us why. Why? Because God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's not about Mike Baker. It's about God restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing me to be a part of the body and serve wherever that is to be. Why? Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that he gets the glory. It's his kingdom. It's his story. Right? Man, when when I wrote this sermon, I hadn't even looked at that skit yet, but it's so cool how all these things line up. Again, they said in it, go apart, go out and be a part of history, his story. We already looked at it a couple weeks ago because God is sovereign and rules over all. We have nothing to fear is essentially how Peter ends this letter. God is sovereign. He rules over all. He's already won. We have nothing to fear. So even if you're suffering for a little while, take care of each other, take care of the flock, be united so you can withstand the devil, so you can stand in your faith, so you can suffer through the suffering. Why? Because he's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And guys, that may actually happen in heaven. It may never happen here on earth. He's restored, I guess, we're his, his children. But some of those things may happen in heaven when he establishes you, what? Forever and ever as one of his children. But today, he restores us, he confirms us, he strengthens us to get through each and every day. And he does establish us. But ultimately, that also is a two-part fold. It will happen for eternity so that he gets the dominion forever and ever. And not me, not you, not any leader. That's why Paul said, we don't follow Peter, Apollos, or, or myself. We follow Christ. It's always been about Christ. It's never been about personal gain. So that's how this letter ends. An encouragement to us in leadership, encouragement to us as the body, having humility, opposing the proud, loving each other, getting rid of our worries so that we can resist the evil one. Because we have to. 
We have to resist the evil one. I mean, tomorrow he's going to challenge us. Maybe even this afternoon. You will not get through life without being tempted by the devil. It's impossible. We've got to be able to stand firm in our faith. We've got to know what our faith is. That's why we study God's Word. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have prayer time. So we actually know what we believe. Cameron's like, I I need to go to Rosedale. I want to firm my faith. I want to get stronger in my faith. I want to know what I believe because I know the world is an absolute mess. I love that he wants to do that. Yeah, it's going to take him maybe a little bit longer. But if he's going to work in the music industry, yeah, he better make sure his faith is firm. That's awesome. $5,000 to spend a year at Rosedale to me is never a waste of money. To strengthen your faith, to get firm in your faith, to know what you believe so you can go out and face the world and be a missionary wherever you're at, that's never a waste. That's an investment well, well earned. So this is what he leaves us with. So that God can get the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this book. God, I thank you for Peter's words. A call of how we should serve and why we should serve. God, a call to trust and have humility. God, a call to be watchful and resist. God, our world has been falling apart, but even more so, it's prevalent. It's obvious. It's no longer maybe hidden. And the devil is deceiving. And Lord, we need each other now more than ever. We need the body more than ever. And so, Lord, help us to hear these, this challenge from Peter to the church. And God, help us to apply them to our lives and apply them to our church. To not just hear this and walk off, but go, no, where do I need to change? Where do I need work? God, just like you showed me that I had to apologize to some people and admit that I did not know what I was talking about and have that humility. Lord, help that to be just the cry of our church to apply these things. In your name we pray. Amen. In closing.